Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains references to suicide and self-harm. If you or someone you know needs support, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, and if it's an emergency, please call triple O immediately. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell, and from Beyond Blue, this is Not Alone. Remarkable stories from everyday Australians about their mental health journey to help you with yours. And this episode is all about supporting a loved one through a mental health condition. I get tired and really frustrated with how hard it all is. Watching her in so much pain is heartbreaking. The hardest thing? I don't know what to do. It's knowing how to support him when he's pushing me away. Every time he has an anxiety attack, he goes MIA. I'm just not sure how many more arguments I can take. How can I help her if she's not willing to let me in? I can in? see him going deeper and deeper into this rut. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning. I don't know where to go for help. I'm scared of asking the wrong questions. I don't know where to go for help. Of setting boundaries. I don't know where to go for help. Of just making it worse. I don't know where to go for help. I was talking to him and he eventually fell asleep, but he was so agitated when he was awake. I was worried that he was going to hurt himself and so I had to stay awake. And I lay at the end of his bed because I figured that he couldn't get past me and he couldn't reach anything. So, yeah, it was my job to keep him safe. In Australia right now, there are approximately 240,000 people who care for a loved one with a mental health condition. It's a massive undertaking. And because there is this continuing stigma around mental health, often the stories of those support people, they tend to go unheard. Did you have an imagination about particular things you wanted to do, particular ways you wanted to raise kids? Anything in that vein? I just wanted to get it right. Yeah? I didn't want to stuff it up. This is Caroline. She is a social worker by trade. She has a PhD from Melbourne Uni and is the mother of two boys. 19 years ago, her eldest son, James, came along. As a baby, he was unsettled. Yep. So uh, we had like sleep charts and, you know, apparently his dummy was an issue. Ah, like as the wrong shape for his mouth? No, he was just, he was just literally doing a dummy spit. Oh. Every 20 minutes at night, and I would go in there and pop it back in. Did you ever end up doing that thing where you just put like a dozen dummies in a cot and then I, just grab I, one? You know I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I remember one time my son, I we went in, in the middle of the night and it's just like, is there a child in the mm. pile of dummies here? Mm-hmm. It looked like the ball pit from IKEA. Yeah, <laughs> of, of dummies. dummies. <laughs> I, we've all done that. He was a, an easy kid. You know, he just made his lunch and off he toddled. He was super popular, um, super sporty, engaged and engaging, and just no trouble. A, a phenomenal kid, really. I suppose it was between year six and year seven, so 12 and 13, he developed migraines Mm -hmm. and a arrhythmia. So his passion at the time was soccer, absolute phenomenal soccer player. And um, the heart arrhythmia would only kick off when he was playing soccer, which just seemed like this really cruel kind of twist. 
At the same time that his physical ailments started to appear, Caroline and her husband started to note changes in James' personality, his mood and behaviour. I noticed uh, around that time that he became very rigid Mm -hmm. in his expectations around what he should be able to do. We noticed that he was withdrawing from friends and from us. And we noticed that he would spend more time in his bedroom. Uh, He would often skip dinner and say he wasn't hungry or he'd eaten earlier. It was a, a change from having been an outgoing, engaging kind of kid who was up for most things. Mm. And I keep saying to him that as my eldest child, I've never been the parent of a 12-year-old. I've never been the parent of a 13-year-old before. Mm. So I I don't know if that's normal. I know when I was that age, and that's all I could reflect on, Mm. that I was pretty moody. Caroline and her husband would chat about James's mood and behaviour, and they agreed that it was all connected to his migraines and his heart arrhythmia, that what was happening in his body was just impacting on his personality and it was nothing more. He had a couple of um, heart ops and they fixed the um, arrhythmia and his cardiologist said, it's just like a broken arm, it's fixed now. And we were like, yay! Within probably a week of his physical ailments being fixed, he just was unable to get out of bed. And, and it sounds kind of dramatic, but we he had something that weekend that he was um, really looking forward to, and he just was like, there was nothing wrong with him physically, mm. but he was just, he said, I just can't do it. And so when he says that to you, knowing that you've had this, you know, really bright, bubbly, mm. easy mm. kid, sporty, mm. and he's also just, you know, fended off a heart condition yeah, yeah. and surgery, which is a not insignificant thing to yep. deal with at that age. You're looking at him, he's in bed, I'm saying, I just can't get out of bed. Mm. What are you thinking? I, I can't say what I'm thinking because it's rude. But I was going, I was just like, oh my God, I don't know. Was it scared or anger I or annoyed? Was, or? It was uh, confusion. Mm-hmm. It was frustration. I'm annoyed because I don't understand it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, no, it's totally fair enough. Of course it's fair enough. Um, and... We're like, and this is your moment, and you, you're saying you can't get out of bed. I just didn't understand it. So that kind of not being able to get out of bed had rumbled along for a bit. And I had woken up, I don't know, it was one or two, so like late, and I went down to his room and I saw him sitting at his desk which was an odd place to be at that time of night. And I asked him what was wrong and he said that he was feeling something that he didn't understand and that it made him scared and he couldn't explain it beyond um, the feeling of fear that it was coming from his own mind. There was nothing else around him that could have contributed to that. There was no nightmares, there was no nothing physical, there was just this sense of of having big uh, feelings and feeling distressed by them. It was a turning point for me because I 
realised that what could hurt my child wasn't necessarily something external. It wasn't necessarily something physical. It was in his own mind. His own mind had kind of turned on him and I didn't know what to do with that. It's a terrible thing to see your child scared. Mm. What was going on inside your head at that point? I felt, you know, fear and panic and terror and confusion, but also enormous responsibility because this is my job to know what to do. Caroline started to shift from the belief that James's problems were all linked to the physical. But it wasn't until he started refusing to go to school that she realised that they were going to have to seek out help. Initially, I would drop him at school and he would call me by the time I'd got home. He'd call me to say, come and pick me up. There were some days when he masked it well. Mm -hmm. And then other days when it was just... uh, He'd get a look in his eyes and it was like, uh, it was like, you know, when you see, and this sounds so awful, when you see an animal that's been trapped Mm. and they're terrified and they're in deep pain, like deep physical pain, and you look into the eyes of your child and see that Mm. and you'd think, how can you continue and get up and go to school? How can you continue to function with that level of pain? It morphed from the physical stuff at 12, 13 to seeing a GP, seeing an educational psychologist. Mm. I was hoping that they would fix the problem. Mm. I was like, all right, six sessions, we've got this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to come in here, have a nap, and you're going to go and get fixed, right? What was he like when he came out of the the first few sessions? The first therapist he saw... The psychologist, he um, kind of maintained him for a, a little bit and he came out, he wasn't terribly agitated, he was fairly calm, mm. but it didn't last long. At some point you did get a diagnosis yep. for him, but you guys don't like to to talk about that too much, I understand. Why is that? Uh, it's just one facet of a person. I think for some people, labels might be terrific, but for us, uh, we're less interested in it. It strikes me as odd that uh, when he had a diagnosis that was a physical condition, we were able to take that in our stride a lot better than when he had a diagnosis that was a a, a mental illness. Mm. Um, And I was kind of offended there was an implication that something fundamental about him was broken and that's offensive as a parent. It kind of took me back. Like it, it was shocking in a way that being told that your child has a physical ailment didn't have the same level of, of shock or blame attached to it perhaps or stigma attached to it. Mm. There was something extra It hadn't entered my mind, despite knowing clearly that mental illness was a thing. It hadn't entered my mind that my child could have uh, be experiencing mental distress. And I 
I'm super embarrassed about this, but I don't doesn't stop me from saying yeah. it that I'd, I don't believed the press that your child had to have experienced significant trauma somewhere to develop mental distress. And so I knew that I loved my children and I knew that they uh, had all the trimmings of a nice family. That sounds gross. <laughs> that sounds so gross. It, it's, but it's true. It's true, yeah. you know, and I just – that it, it that mental illness happens to other people and it's just bullshit. I'm sorry. That's it, But it's true. It is true. As the years tick by, James's mental health condition takes hold and it starts to have this impact on the family environment, particularly Caroline and her husband. Andrew and I would often have to take breaks, like physical breaks, from being in an environment that was super stressful. If we didn't take a break, as in physically getting out and having a walk, we would bicker over who had done what wrongest. That's not... <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. <laughs> or who was alternatively better at doing um, what needed to be done for James. So, and it's all coming from a place of we just want to do what's best. Absolutely. And second-guessing ourselves. So the really um, one of the horrible things about loving someone with a mental illness is that as a parent or a guardian, you second-guess your skills all the time. So as a parent, you second-guess what you're doing anyway because you've kind of got no idea, right? Literally. When there's an overlay of mental illness, you really second-guess what you're doing is this the right thing to do? Did I do something that was really wrong? No, you actually, you did something that was really wrong. So there was a, oh, a lot of bickering yeah. over silly things, but at the time it felt like it could be the key to understanding what was going on. Despite all of that, home was still very much James's safe haven. However, outside of those four walls... The perceptions of others meant that people started distancing themselves from him, and actually not just him, the entire family. I think people were as confused as we were about what was happening. I think he's got some terrific mates, and there were some terrific mates that helped him through, but not everyone understood what he was going through. Could you give an example of something that might have been said that was hurtful? The reason I ask you is very specific, mm. because... Lots of people, when they know somebody going through a mental health uh, period of ill health, do not know what to say mm. or if to say anything. And I think it's helpful to understand the sort of things that were hurtful mm. to you and your family. So what were the sorts of things that were being said that were hurtful? I, I think the part around implicating your parenting skills is really super hurtful as a parent. I can't speak to what hurt James the most, but I can certainly speak to what what hurt us as a family the most. The, the kind of subtle, have you looked at your own family tree stuff around? Yeah, that's not subtle, is it? No, it's not really that subtle, no. <laughs> so, um, that hurts. The exclusion. How do you mean exclusion? Uh, you know, over the years... When your child goes to school, schools can be clicky, parents can be clicky, and you've got a child who is presenting in a way that people love to other, right? Mm. Uh, his behaviours 
can be confronting. So, um, you know, it's a few less invitations. I think they were scared that their kids were going to catch it. What's better, saying the wrong things with the right intention or saying nothing at all? Oh, taking the wrong things with right intention, I think. Why? Because mental illness isolates. It isolates the person going through it. It isolates their support people. And when you start, when people start moving away and not saying anything, it just compounds that sense of loneliness and isolation. So I'd rather people just blundering around saying dumb shit, to be honest, than not, not tackling that. Treating you like a leper. Treating me like a leper. Worse still, I, I can deal with that, right? But my kid does not deserve to be treated like a leper. Mm. Like ever. When did you first realise that James was self-harming? Um, it was daytime and I had gone down to check on him in his bedroom because I guess I was just checking in to see what was up and I noticed that he pulled down his sleeve on his school jumper and he was um, hiding something, which as a parent, that sends off red flags. What are you hiding, Mm. you know? You also spend your entire life as an adult protecting them from things outside of them. The whole notion that you have to then protect them from themselves. Is unfathomable. And the idea that I'd have to protect him from his mind was just life-changing. With this new reality, Caroline became ever vigilant. Maybe a little too vigilant. He has a song that um, when he's feeling particularly depressed Mm. or anxious or self-harmy, that he would play and I could hear this song playing in his room and I knew what it meant and I heard the song and then I heard the shower go on and that was often where he would be his most miserable. <laughs> so I went in there. I was like, a ba- I was banging the door and I was like, you yeah, know, you were right in there. And then I was like, I know what you're doing. And so I was just like, right, I can't cope with this. There's going to be no, no self-harm on my watch today. <laughs> just pause for a second. Yeah. How old was he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 15, maybe? So 15-year-old boy's yeah. in the shower. Long shower. You're knocking on the door uh, saying, I know what you're doing Yeah, yeah I know, there. I know, I know. It's, it's, <laughs> welcome to mental health. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> because what every other 15-year-old is doing in a long shower <laughs> was not necessarily what my 15-year-old was doing. So uh, he, basically what he was doing was shampooing his hair. Right? And I was crying then. I was doing the laughing and crying. And he's looked at me and said, Mum, I think you need a hug. And so we just had this uh, wet, shampoo-y hug <laughs> where we just held on tight because he knew that I was worried that he was self-harming and that I just love him so much, you know. I just didn't want him to hurt. Was there ever a time when you thought that James would not survive his illness. Yeah. Um, And those times, even though they're in the past, stay with you as a parent. And it is, it feels like it was something that happened yesterday. 
we were desperate to get away and uh, that's what other families do, right? Mm -hmm. So why couldn't we have that? And that's what I felt. You know, it's like we're really important to try and keep the wheels turning on our family. And so we'd booked a holiday to Queensland and when we got there he became increasingly unwell and he was feeling suicidal. So we actually ended up a couple of days into the holiday booking flights to get home because we didn't think we could keep him safe. What sort of impact does a moment like that have on you? I don't know whether that impact can be kind of uh, summed up in in a few words. It feels like a part of your brain is just forever changed by the trauma and every moment of an illness kind of alters your expectations. And this was just another moment where my expectations of a holiday, something that I thought was kind of simple and kind of doable, um, was just kind of altered. There's a kind of a before and an after. (laughs) And the after is I'm, I'm kind of mistrustful of the universe the most assumed experiences have just changed. Caroline eventually chose to leave her job and spend more time supporting James, all the while trying to finish off her doctorate. But the pressure and the strain the family was under, it was intense. It just felt like an overwhelming catastrophe of proportions that you weren't equipped to deal with. And I'd come in from I don't know where and I just could not stop crying. And I just like, I actually kind of collapsed in this weird, super dramatic (laughs) collapse to the floor. And I just thought, James can't see me like this, you know. Why was it important that he didn't see you like that? Because I knew how much pain he was in and I didn't want to add to it. Mm. And I had to be there for him. He he shouldn't have to look after me. So I managed to kind of crawl to my bedroom and I just thought, I've got to just pull it together. Come on. You've got Caroline, pull it together. And he came in and he said, Mum, it's okay, it's okay. Then I heard him ring my husband and say, Mum won't stop crying. <laughs> I remember just thinking, oh, like your whole world just collapses, your world order collapses. And I thought, I've got this kid who's super unwell and self-harming and suicidal and he's ringing his dad to say, mum won't stop crying. It just felt, I'm supposed to be the strong one. I'm supposed to have this, right? But this is the really complicated thing about this, which is in that moment he still thought, very much to take care of you. And I think this is one of those things that people don't understand, that the the mixture of responsibility and care and love, it is more complicated than people imagine. Of course. He is a phenomenal kid. Everyone's kid is phenomenal. And just because uh, he might be, his behaviours might be the source of my distress, he was also the source of my comfort. Caroline spent a lot of her time trying to find solutions for James. But the truth is what often helps isn't someone trying to offer up solutions, but rather someone who can provide love and support. 
someone who's just there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that as a parent of someone who is experiencing mental distress, you have to live with. You have to accept. Accepting it and not trying to fix it, not trying to change, because uh, it's not going to work. So when did you decide that you would change the way you approached the self-harming, how you reacted to it as a family? I think it was probably quite subtle. So our horror and outrage at the self-harming we could see wasn't doing any good. It added to his shame. And what we didn't want to keep doing was adding to his sense of self-loathing. And it was exhausting. Yeah. I can imagine. So when we least feel like hugging him, this was our thing, when we least felt like hugging him, we knew he had to have one. (laughs) Come on in. (laughs) Love it. You know? Absolutely love it. Like when he was at his most angry or miserable or just nasty or vicious because we knew what was happening in his head. We're like, I don't feel like hugging him, but I've got to hug him. I've got to love this kid. I've got to dial it up to 10, you know. So you've got this angry, sullen kid in front of you and you're just like, I'm going to bear hug this out of you. I am (laughs) coming in, knocking doors down, (laughs) loving you even if you don't want it. This became known as the love bomb strategy. Just hugs, acceptance, support all the time. Actually, not just that. Caroline busted out her watercolours and she painted these A3-sized affirmations, which she would just stick around the house and they would say things like, forgive yourself for what you didn't do today and try again tomorrow. And sometimes it's really simple stuff like, you're enough. And, And honestly, this just sounds like one of the hardest things a parent can do. And this strategy, in some ways, it just goes against a lot of your instincts. But... It seemed to have a positive impact because pretty soon James was self-harming less and less. When he went through periods of, of not self-harming, how would you as a family uh, react yeah, to yeah. those periods? Yeah, awesome. Bloody brilliant. It's like, forget VCE. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Get, let's get rid of that as a way of celebrating your ATAR score. Mm. This kid hasn't self-harmed for a while a week, two weeks, three months, six months. That is the big deal. Would you commemorate those those moments? Yeah, dinners, yeah, celebrations. Yeah, right. How do they – just describe for me what a non-hurting yourself for a period of time dinner goes. Looks like you got your favourite dinner, you got your dumplings. Nice. Your your dumpling scenario. Um, yeah, so it, it was probably mainly just the small things and that sense of um, accomplishment that he got. Like he felt that we could see this was something that he'd achieved. Mm-hmm. So we're just support people. He's the he's the main deal. Soon the family had cause for another big celebration. When he finished year twelve, yeah, we actually went to a year twelve celebration which we never thought we'd ever get to do. And we'd started celebrating the weirdest shit, to be honest. Like we <laughs> started celebrating, I don't know, you know, made it through, I don't know, February. Woo! <laughs> okay. uh, we really started to, to celebrate the small stuff. So a year 12 thing was, celebration was huge. How did you feel when you finished school? 
Uh, to be honest, enormous relief. I can imagine. The long years had taught Caroline to celebrate the little wins, but never to get ahead of herself, to never let a good moment define the way she saw the whole picture. And while finishing school was absolutely a massive achievement, it didn't necessarily mean that James was out of the woods. But he kept on improving. And soon after graduation, James packed his bags. He headed off overseas for eight months to teach in Mexico, also worked as a summer camp counsellor in California. Caroline said he returned with enormous pride in what he'd accomplished. He also returned with a bunch of tattoos, one of which is some roses, and at the heart of them, the word mum. What made it more manageable to do day by day for you? Uh, Being kinder to myself, accepting that at the end of the day I always do the best I can do. Mm -hmm. And... Stop fighting against what's happening. Was that hard to come to that realisation? Yeah. It was reached with no dignity at all. It was me kicking and screaming against the unrealness of it all. Mm. But James's journey has also been incredibly enlightening. I feel incredibly... See, now I'm going to cry. I feel incredibly grateful that um, we got through this. When was the moment you realised that you had? (laughs) It's moments, and uh, there are some days where I still think, I'm not going to get through this. And then there's other moments where I go, oh, my God, we are winning. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's in those moments where I I kind of go, "Uh, he's alive and he's freaking awesome And we have a beautiful relationship and uh, he's a good sort. Uh, It's a very specific phrase, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. something very specific (laughs) in people's minds. He's a good sort. Yeah, he's a good sort. And, um, yeah, that's when I know we've done okay. Honestly, as a parent, I am quietly in awe of Caroline's ability to mum. And there are so many complications that come with raising a child through puberty. And that's why we wanted to reach out to Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blasky, just to work out how you handle those years. Dr Grant, lovely to see you again. Good to see you. I think one of the really telling parts about Caroline's story is that James's mental health really sharply declined around the onset of puberty. And I reckon a lot of parents listening to this are going, I don't know how to differentiate between sort of normal preteen angst. And when the, we're talking about a possible mental health uh, issue here. So how, if you're in that position as a parent, how can you tell the difference? Now, there's not one clear guideline, but a couple of things to look out for is, are those changes across the board? Like, are they just moody at home or are they going out with their friends and happy as anything? No, I'm great to see my friends. Like, is it is it pervasive is it oh, okay. in all aspects of their life? And, you know, if they're withdrawn at home and they don't want to go out with their friends and they don't want to see their cousins, you know, it's across the board. Pervasive. Interesting. So that would be the first thing. The second thing's more of a subjective thing, but the intensity You know, so there's angry and there's angry. And how often is that happening? You know, is that a very intense sort of upset or is it just, you know, the occasional getting a bit moody? So I think the intensity is very important as well. 
And the other thing I'd say is how long this is going on for. Not a week, Chris, it's going on for months. This is like a big change. So no simple tick box answer, but these are some of the things that you can look out for. One of the things that was really vivid in Caroline's story was the stigma that she experienced. And in fact, her whole family experienced. Do you hear a lot of stories like that? I do. And I think she articulated it so well, how stigma can be quite subtle. So it's the obvious stigma, you know, someone saying something rude or discriminatory. But there's that subtle stigma that she talked about, how, you know, there's a sort of a judgment. And, and in her case, she could really see the different reaction of people to a physical condition and a mental health condition. Mm. So it might be you're not invited to the parties or, you know, the mums are or the fathers, you know, telling their kids, I'll stick clear a little bit from that kid. He's a bit of trouble, you know, so it can be quite subtle. And I think we've still got a long way to go on reducing stigma in the community. Mm. Just as a, a really practical tip, if you're a parent of teenagers and you think mental health help might be required, what's the first thing you do to get support? Lots of support out there. So um, you could contact the Beyond Blue phone line, one three hundred double two four six three six. Be aware throughout Australia, there's excellent headspace centres, which are youth friendly. Uh, you could go along to your GP, heaps of stuff online as well. So there's lots of help out there for young people. And of course, if we can get in early before things unravel, that's much better. Mm. And lastly... What is it about Caroline's story? Oh, I guess Caroline and James's story, really, that's going to stay with you. I think uh, I relate it as I think many parents will, just that sort of pain, really, of having one of your children unwell. And honestly, for a parent, you'd think, oh, gosh, I prefer it was me. I don't want my child to go through with this. It's a very painful time. And, um, you know, I think her very open sharing of her story will be uh, really something interesting and supportive for people out there. I hope so. Dr. Grant, lovely to talk to you as always. Great to talk. If there are other mums, dads, parents out there listening to this that might be looking after a child experiencing mental ill health, what would you want them to know? That when they're awake at 2am, and I know they will be, fretting about what it is they may have done or what's going to happen or what could they do differently, that it's not their fault and that they're not alone. I do just want to say a huge thank you to Caroline and her family, uh, James as well, for sharing that family story. You can join the conversation anytime you want. You can also share your story at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. A lot of stuff covered in this episode. So if you know somebody that needs support, you can visit our website or call our support service on 1300 224636. There's also quite a few resources in the show notes. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast. It's hosted by me. My name's been Mark Fennell. Uh, it's produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton, Sarah Alexander and Tom Ross. This podcast was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung and Gadigal country. We pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.